going to continue our new series. We're in a new series in 1 Thessalonians. We're calling it Authentic Church. So I'll encourage you to grab a Bible and open it to 1 Thessalonians. You can find Bibles under the chairs if you don't have one of your own or don't have one on a device. Uh, and you can open up that black Bible to page 986. Page 986 is where you will find 1 Thessalonians. This week we're moving into the first major section and we're calling it Authentic Adoption. So as we look at the letter that talks about what an authentic church is and does, Paul starts with talking about the reality and the authenticness of their adoption as being children loved by God. And then he says, I can see that this is real. I can see that God really loves you. He's really adopted you. He's really chosen you because I see this supernatural work happening in your life. Um, I don't know if, if you're like me, but I had these weird thoughts when I was a little kid. I I watched a lot of sci-fi and I read a lot of comic books and I used to just wonder sometimes if perhaps, maybe, my parents and my, brothers and my brother and sister had been kidnapped by aliens and replaced with androids. So did you wonder that? I'm sure a lot of people wondered that back in the 80s. Um, this is just something I worried about sometimes. Um, and I recognize, all kidding aside, I recognize maybe that's extreme. Maybe that's weird uh, to think that your family's been replaced by androids or aliens, but I do think we all wonder if our family's for real, right? So just more generally, I think we all wonder, am I really loved? Do I have a place in this world? Do I belong? Maybe it's not your family per se. Maybe it's where you work. Maybe it was school. Maybe this was something you went through as a teen. Like, do I belong? Does anybody love me? Where, where do I fit in all of this? And the Thessalonian church, as we saw last week, had gone through incredible persecution and affliction and difficulty. They lived in a kind of world that we live in, which is a world of brokenness and pain and hard things. And in the midst of the hard things that we go through in life, we will be tempted to think, does anybody care? Does anybody love me? Or am I just on my own? And Paul's going to start out strong here saying, I, I know you're loved. I know you're adopted. I know you're chosen by God because I see his supernatural work in your life. So hopefully this will be encouraging to you as it is to me as I see this. We'll read 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 4 through 10, where Paul picks this up. He says, I know you're loved, and I know you're loved because of all this that has been happening in and around you. So starting in verse 4, he says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. I'm going to pray and ask the Lord to help us, that his Holy Spirit would meet us here. The power we just read about would help us to hear and receive his words. Let me pray. God, thank you that you love us. And we see that most clearly through the cross, that you came after us, that you sent your son for us, that he died for our sins, that he rose from the dead. But God, we, we need your spirit to awaken our hearts so that we would really sense that in the here and now. We live in a world where it's easy to forget. And so we pray that you would remind us that your spirit would join your word 
and we would believe fully who you are and what you're doing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, my major thesis here is that authentic adoption, really belonging to God as a child of God, being his son or his daughter, is what Paul is saying is evidenced by all these other things that he sees, right? So he starts off with, you're loved by God, you're chosen by God, and then he gives a laundry list of, I know that to be the case because I see all these other things happening in your life. So I want to just start with talking about this concept of being chosen and adopted by God because it is a controversial subject, and I don't want to spend all our time on it, so I kind of want to set it up a little bit and then say, but what is Paul spending his time on in the text? Let's spend our time on that. Um, And so there are two major categories among gospel-believing, Bible-reading Christians, and they're often used, we often use these labels, Calvinism and Arminianism. I personally try to avoid the labels because I want to just say, uh, do we love Jesus and do we trust his Bible, right? Um, But we kind of have one side or the other that we fall on this balancing act of understanding that God is sovereign and in control of all things, and all Christians that read the Bible believe that. And then the human beings that God has created, we have real choices, real responsibilities that matter, right? Both of those two things, we have to acknowledge those are true and real. And then as Christians, we, we tend to kind of work that out in different ways. And, and my, my gross overgeneralization is this. For those of us that lean Calvinist, we kind of say, I see these verses that say God predestined, chose, picked me out, and I'm sure those because I see those. And then somehow that's true without me being a robot and I have real choices, right? So I'm clear on one and I'm fuzzy on the other. And then Arminians tend to say basically the same thing, just the other direction, right? I see that I have real choice, this free will that's really important, my responsibility is important. And then I'm kind of fuzzy. There's this like God's in control of all things, you know? And so we're both saying both things. And so I try to encourage us to be unified and say where we're unified is we both agree that God's in control, we're responsible and the cross is my only hope. That's where our unity lies. And we tried to paint that picture when we were going through Romans. Um, and so I would encourage you, if you have more questions, I'd be happy to talk to you more about it and encourage you to go listen to the five sermons I did on Romans 8 and 9 as well. They're great. You'll love them. Um, but here, here, Paul says, okay, I'm talking about this choosing. The word in the Greek is literally election. I think God has chosen you. I think God loves you. Why? And then he And then he tells us why. He says, this is why I think God really loves you. This is why I don't think you need to doubt his love for you, because these other things have been going on. So let's look at those other things. He says, we can trust there's an authentic adoption, that God really loves you, that he's really chosen you, because we were speaking transcendently. Because when we spoke to you, there was something otherworldly about it. So transcendent is kind of a $10 word, right? It just kind of means that there's something out there beyond what we can see, taste, touch, smell, and measure, right? Now, our staff all just went to a conference earlier in the week where we saw, uh, about half of our team saw a summary of a sociologist's book, and it was called A Secular Age by Charles Taylor. Any of you ever, you read that book? A lot of you sociologists out there? Um, Nobody's read it. Okay, so I'm going to give you a brief executive summary. Here's the concept. He's saying we live in a world, a secular age, where everything is framed in an imminent frame. Now, imminent's another complicated word because there's like three spellings of it, right? So he's using the spelling of imminent that means everything is close here on the ground. That's the world we live in. We only live in a reality where if I can't see it or touch it, it's not real. That's the culture we live in. 
And we lack now a transcendent frame, right? So in medieval times where people would just been like, well, of course there's a God or there's spirits or something, we, we much less believe in that now as a, as a culture, as a whole, right? And so even if you're a Christian that believes in the transcendent, that believes that there's something else out there besides what you can see and taste and touch and measure, you have to realize you're swimming in this ocean of a culture that absolutely doesn't believe in it. So even if you do believe in transcendence, there's this constant drip of, are you sure about that? That's kind of crazy. You're kind of an idiot. Yeah, there's nothing transcendent. This world is all there is. We're all just going to burn in the end. You know, the sun's going to get too big and we're going to evolve and, you know, it's meaninglessness. So as Christians, we believe that there's transcendence, but everything around us tells us we're crazy for believing that. And so Paul says, one of the ways that I know that God loves you is that when we spoke, there was a transcendence about it. There was something alien and otherworldly that came into this frame, this world we normally live in, where people just talk and try to sell you on their new idea. The Holy Spirit came in. There was supernatural power at work. And this is what he's saying in verse 4 and 5. So in 4, again, reiterating the love part, he says, we know, brothers, loved by God that he has chosen you. And then in verse 5, he says, why? Because, look at verse 5. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. He said it wasn't just words. There were all kinds of teachers in the first century that would come through, try to teach people to follow their way. Imagine the self-help bookstore shelf, right? Have you ever seen self-help books out there? You know, dieting books and how to get better at business and how to control your life and how to organize and the blogs that we read on this stuff. Well, imagine all that, but funneled through traveling teachers. And that was the first century. Traveling teachers went through town teaching people the next great idea of how to get your life in order. And so people had that all the time in the first century. And Paul says, you know what? We didn't come in and just tell you how to get your life under control. But there was real power at work here. There was something supernatural happening. The Holy Spirit joined our speaking so that it wasn't just words. It was something more than words. It was something incredible, something transcendent. We were speaking transcendently to you. So he says, our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. Conviction is this, uh, it's this word that kind of means fullness. There was this overflowingness. We came to you with full conviction. God was really with us. We were overflowing with this power of the Holy Spirit. The word gospel literally means good news. So Paul's speaking the good news of Jesus, and he says it wasn't just words, but the Holy Spirit was operating. Paul says similar things in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And so you can go back and read it some other time if you want. I'll just summarize it for you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, we came to you with fear and trembling. Why? Because everywhere that they'd preached the gospel before, the eight other cities, they'd gotten beat up and run out of town, right? We talked about that a little bit last week. Same thing happened in Thessalonica. And so after Thessalonica, he goes to Berea. The Thessalonians chase him in Berea, and they chase him out of Berea. And then he goes to Athens, and then people tell him he's an idiot in Athens. And he finally ends up in Corinth. And he says when he gets to Corinth, he was like, there was fear and trembling, right? We felt absolutely weak, but we spoke of nothing but the cross of Christ. And the Holy Spirit's power was with us. So he has the same kind of parallel there of saying, man, I I didn't feel like an expert teacher. I didn't feel like the brilliant man. Paul was a brilliant man. He's like, I wasn't leaning on that. I was leaning on the Holy Spirit's power. I was leaning on the 
the power of the story itself of Jesus Christ and what he's accomplished through his cross. So we need to be careful and make sure we, we don't misunderstand what Paul's saying, because what he's not saying is we didn't use words, right? He says we didn't just use words, but we relied on the Holy Spirit. So sometimes we get twisted up as Christians, right? Because we say, well, I don't want to rely on my flesh. I want to rely on the power of God. So sometimes we think what that means is just throwing out our gifts completely. And that's not what he's saying. He's saying don't rely on your gifts. Use your gifts relying on the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you see the difference? Because Paul was one of the most brilliant men who ever lived. He, he wrote most of the New Testament. He was educated in the finest schools. He was incredibly brilliant. You can read his writing and see he did use wisdom and persuasive speech, right? So when he says, I didn't use persuasive speech or wisdom, what he's saying is I didn't rely on that. But he was wise. He was brilliant. He used great rhetoric. He had persuasive words. He was just saying, I didn't rely on that stuff. What I was relying on was the power of the story of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit to apply that to your hearts. And so we should do the same thing. We may not be preachers, we may not be missionaries, but we in everything that we say should be relying on the power of the Holy Spirit. We should be speaking transcendently, knowing like Paul says in Acts 17, that we were placed in the place he put us, God put us there on purpose. You're at Fort Hood for God's sovereign purposes. He wants you here. He wants to use you to speak of his grace wherever you go. So speak transcendently. Wake, wake up to the reality that God is going to use you to testify to his goodness in every place that you go. Another cross-reference that's helpful, I said 1 Corinthians 2 is one of them. There's another one in 1 Peter 4. In 1 Peter 4, uh, 10 through 11, Peter says it this way. He says, um, no matter what you do, you're a steward of God's varied grace. So we all have different kinds of talents and different things that we can do. And no matter what, we're a steward, we're a a manager. So think of yourself like a fast food manager and you manage this shop and you are to give an accounting for what you do with the cash register and the food and the employees. Paul says we're all like that. We're like fast food managers of God's grace. Some of you he's given a big store, some of you he's given a small store, some of you have a lot of cash assets, some of you have a lot of people working for you, some of you have great food, some of you not so much, you know, it's all different, right? But we're all managers, we're all stewards of God's varied grace. And he's saying, what are you going to do with it? This is what I've given you, what are you going to do with it? Peter thankfully gives us some suggestions and Peter says, here's two ways to think about it says, those of you that are servers, those of you that are workers, that are doers, do as if you're doing things with the very strength of God. So again, the answer is not stop doing anything and just wait on God. The answer is do, but do your stuff as if it's the strength of God. So are you a doer? Are you a, a get things done kind of guy or gal? Are you the person that's like, I can get it done. I'm going to be busy. I'm going to keep working. I'm going to work harder than anybody else. Great, but do that relying on the strength that God gives you. Recognize that every gift you have, every strength you have comes from his hand. And then Peter says, and those of you that are speakers, speak as if you're speaking the very words of God. So here's the temptation for us. If you are a great doer, the temptation is to think, I can get it done. I don't need God. Especially thinking about the world we live in, the temptation is, this is all there is. What I can do and what I can see is all that exists. There is no God. I'm on my own. And as Christians, we can say with our mouths that we believe in the transcendence. We believe that God is there and that he loves us 
and he's died on the cross for our sins, but we can live as if he's not there. We can live as if we don't really believe he's there, and it's all up to us. The same thing with speaking, right? If, if you're a speaker, the temptation, is, temptation for me as a speaker is to think, if I speak well enough, if I speak clearly enough, if I'm persuasive enough, then I can convince people to follow Jesus. Instead of saying, you know what? I'm not going to give up those gifts. I'm not going to give up the training I've been given, but I'm going to plead with God that he would show up and he would work through my words. That's what Peter, that's what Paul is calling us to do as well. Are you a gifted speaker? Don't rely only on your gifts. Plead with God to help you. Are you a gifted doer? Don't rely just on your gifts, but plead with God to work through you that that his grace would be manifest, that people would would see it at, at work in you. I grabbed a picture here of a guy praying with the city skyline in the background. Um, I don't even know which city that is because it's kind of fuzzy, but it reminds me of when uh, Chris Webster, our worship pastor, and I got to visit some of our workers in Asia, and we stopped in Hong Kong, and the city skyline is just incredible. It's huge, right? Like New York City, if you've been to any big city, it can just be really beautiful. Um, And one of the strange experiences when you're in a large city is you can just be overwhelmed with all the people. Um, I'm that way anyway, maybe not for you, but I'm, I'm gifted as like a people-oriented person. So then I just like want to connect with the people I see and I just get overwhelmed. I can't, there's too many people, right? I just can't connect with everybody. Um, and, and so what that can force me to do is just pray, right? Lord, be with these people. Help me, help me focus on like who you want me to talk to and what you want me to do. Because when I'm in that position of just overwhelmedness, I recognize I can't do it, right? Those one, that's one of those situations where I'm taken to the end of my flesh. My everyday life, I'm like, I, I like people. I can deal with people, but I'm in Hong Kong or New York City. I'm like, nope, can't do it. Five bazillion people, I can't handle it. Where are those places where you're taken to the end of your flesh and you kind of wake up, yeah, okay, I guess I do need to pray, right? I, I need to pray. I, I would say the goal is that we would get there more quickly, that we would just kind of live there every day. So, so do you pray? Do you ask God to help you? Do you plead with him to empower your doing and your speaking, recognizing that God is a transcendent God and he wants to work in this imminent frame through you? He wants his transcendence, his otherworldliness, his Holy Spirit power and full conviction to show up in your daily life. That's God's calling on us, just like it was For Paul, you may not be a missionary that's going to every city all over the Mediterranean world, but God wants to speak through you in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your family. He wants to speak through you. He wants to show up, and it starts with us praying, God, help me. God, speak through me. God, work through my gifts. Help me to rely on you instead of relying on my flesh. The next thing we see is he knows that their adoption is authentic. He he knows that they're really loved by God. They're really chosen by God. They're really adopted by him because they believe courageously. They, they receive the word. So all the confusion that can come when we start talking about Calvinism and Arminianism, um, it, it all has to be centered, funneled back through the cross. So we might have different theological ideas, different philosophical ideas, and we have to say, okay, what do we agree on? We agree that, man, I'm messed up. Without, without Jesus, I am a broken man. I'm sinful and selfish. I need Jesus to, to pay the price for my sins. The cross is what unifies all believers throughout all time. And, and this is the good news that they received. This is the good news that they accepted, that they believed. So he says at the end of verse 5, 
you knew what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. So that's kind of a helpful transition between their speaking transcendently and their reception, because he's going to talk about how they imitated his example. But I want to kind of make the connection back to the speaking transcendently. You knew what kind of men we were as we lived among you, and what he's implying is we weren't relying just on our gifts. We weren't like the traveling salesman that went from town to town just trying to win followers, just trying to flatter people, just trying to use our gifts to win people to our side. So in the first century, those people were called sophists, which meant just wise speakers. And in the New Testament, those people are often called false teachers. That means someone who comes along and tries to win you to a new idea. Hey, look at this. Doesn't this verse mean this to you? Okay, now come join us and give me a lot of money. And it's just it's like trying to win followers instead of trying to really love people and lead them to God. Paul says, you knew, you knew that's not who we were. And then verse 6, he says, in verse 6, and you became imitators of us. So instead of being dishonest men trying to win you with comfort and persuasion, we were honest men telling you the truth about judgment and grace, and you imitated us. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. So he's got three generations here of imitation and example, right? Uh, imitation is just like mimicking somebody. It's a simple word. We all kind of understand. The example word is interesting because it's kind of a physical word picture, and it's tupas, which would have been used for like stamping or marking something. So think of like in the, in the ancient world, they would have branded things in wax, right? You might have had a brand on a ring or on a pendant, and you would have branded a letter in the wax, right? You would impress it, so it's got a mark. Uh, or think of a printing press, right? A die is cast in metal, and then you put it in the ink, and you stamp something. So there's this concept there of an example that, that you've been marked, right? You've been impressed. Sometimes it's painful. Sometimes there, there's a lot of pressure applied there. And he's saying, you imitated us, and you were an example for others. He says, we were an example to you of being honest and not being a traveling salesman, trying to just persuade you with our own flesh. Then you imitated us by receiving the gospel, by believing it courageously in the midst of much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So there was affliction, there was difficulty, there was pain, and you still believed the gospel. You still believed the truth that God loves you, even though there was pain, right? So your temptation is to say, man, the imminent frame here is that I'm in pain, so God must hate me. He says, no, you believe the message that God has entered into your pain, that Jesus became one of you, and he's been abused like you have been, and he's been betrayed like you have been, and he's uh, bled like you have bled. But he, he did not, only relate to you at that level, but he actually died with a purpose to take your sins upon himself. And he rose from the dead, certifying, vindicating that, that he can give you life, that he's conquered sin and death. Paul says that, that's what was imitated. We were honest, we were real. You followed us by believing and receiving this message, and then now you're an example to others in Macedonia and Achaia. You are believing courageously in the midst of your your pain, and your difficulty. My question for you is, in the midst of whatever you're going through, in the midst of whatever you're going through, are you willing to believe that God loves you? Are you, are you willing to believe this transcendent message that the God that we can't see, touch, or hear entered into this world where we could see him and touch him, and he became one of us, 
and he died on the cross for your sins. Are you willing to believe that he entered into this world where we doubt he exists? He came in and he walked where we walked and he took our pain and our death upon himself. Are you, are you willing to believe that? Often we think of believing courageously as this big leap of faith. Um, I grabbed a picture of a bridge. I often think about like taking a bridge across a chasm just seen in one of the Indiana Jones movies where he like steps out onto an invisible bridge, right? It's this kind of blind leap of faith thing. And we're tempted to think about faith as if it has nothing to do with the real world, right? Like faith is this complete blind leap and I'm just jumping out there hoping God catches me. But the New Testament actually speaks of it as kind of two-sided, that it's, it is a sense of scariness, Right? When you're stepping out onto a scary rope bridge, there's part of you that's like, okay, I think this can hold me because it just held the 10 people and the donkey that went ahead of me, right? So I think it'll hold me. But there's another part of you that's saying, no, 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 right? I don't want to do this. I've gone rappelling with kids in the past. I used to be a youth pastor. So, you know, you rappel off the side of a cliff. And there's part of you that's like, I know the rope can hold me. The instructor told me how it worked. I've seen other people do it. But I'm going off a cliff, Right? And there's just part of me that's saying, no, this is crazy. Don't do it. This is stupid. So, so there's a, a balance of, of overcoming our fear, believing courageously. There's also a, a common senseness to it. And we talked about that a couple of weeks ago at Easter time, that the New Testament never says, believe for no reason. The New Testament says, here's a lot of evidence that historically and journalistically, this is something that happened. Jesus was a real man who lived and died and resurrected. And there's a lot of stories and there's a lot of evidence and there's a lot of recordings to back that up. More so than than any other ancient event that ever happened. More evidence. And you know what? Intuitively, it makes sense. It makes sense about the world that we live in. We kind of have lived life and we know the world is broken and we know we need some kind of salvation from somewhere, right? There's an intuitive connection that, again, it makes sense. And so there are these levels at which it's, logical and reasonable to trust Jesus, but it's still courageous, and it's still hard, and it still requires an open hand of faith of saying, ultimately, I can't do this. I need you. Will you save me? Are you willing to do that? I've been meeting with people for baptism the last few weeks. We have a baptism coming up uh, in a week, and we often like to talk through what we call the Roman road, Any of you ever heard of the Roman road? It's like a set of four Bible verses. It goes through the book of Romans. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so what that's saying is is none of us have measured up. And in Romans in particular, it's saying both those of us that are wild and rebellious as well as those of us that are self-righteous, religious people, all of us have sinned. None of us measure up to God's glory and beauty and perfection We know the world's not as beautiful as it could be, right? We can all just see intuitively, man, there's something wrong, something not right out there and in here. And so that's what Romans 3.23 is affirming, all of sin and falling short of the glory of God. And then Romans 5.8 is great because it says, you know what? While you were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to fix ourselves because the longer you live, the more you realize I can't fix myself. You try, you try, you try. You need someone from the outside to come in and fix you. And that's the gospel story. He didn't wait. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 6.23 gives a little more clarity. And Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. We've earned death through our sin, like punching the time clock. That's our paycheck is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. 
So there's two ways in this world that you can operate. You can either operate on trying to earn your keep, and the wages of sin is death. Or you can operate with the open hands of faith to receive the free gift of salvation. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And then Romans 10.9 is a helpful ending to this pathway that says, you know what, you need to confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, that he rose from the dead. If you would believe courageously, despite the pain you're going through, despite the bad things you've seen, believe that God really does love you, that the story is true, he will save you. He'll transform your life. He'll begin to use you then to make this world a better place. And that's what he wants to do with you. That's what he wants to do with me as well. So again, Paul says, I know know you're loved by God because you believed the message. That's how we know. In the end, we're not sure. All this stuff is confusing. Big philosophy and big theology. We just know that we belong to him because we believe the message. Because we know of his kindness to us. The last thing I want us to see is that we are to wait loudly. Um, wait loudly. So I took three verses and kind of compressed it down into two words here. Wait loudly. What does that mean? It sounds like you're complaining. I don't mean it like you're complaining, you know, waiting in line and griping about it. Um, you're to wait in a way in which you loudly proclaim Jesus' goodness while you're waiting for Jesus to come back, right? Um, end time stuff, we talk about the return of Jesus. And in Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus talks about this. And I'd encourage you on your own time to go read the three parables of how we should wait. But the three parables of the end times aren't saying make complicated charts of the end times, which is what some Christians try to do. But they say, wait in such a way that people can see that your hope is in Jesus. Jesus says in one parable, serve the other servants. Don't take advantage of them. And then in another parable, he says, invest your talents. Don't just bury them. And then in another parable, he says, prepare to celebrate when Jesus comes back. Get ready to party. Make him the focus of your celebration and your party. So those are three end-time parables in Matthew 24 and 25 that say this is how we should live. Paul's going to echo this kind of language here when he says, wait loudly. So look at verse 8. He says, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. Your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. So this is the loud part here. Uh, the word where it says sounded forth is the Greek word exekeo, uh, um, and we get the word echo from that. And so think if something's really loud, it echoes, it reverberates, right? Like in a huge stadium, don't just think of you by yourself at a creek making an echo, but think of like a huge stadium where someone's speaking on a loudspeaker, and it's like, wah, 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 you know, super loud. Uh, my son lives next to the football stadium. When we were moving him in, we could hear every bit of the play-by-play, Right? because it was ringing out, it was sounding forth, and that's what this word says. It's used often to talk about ocean waves, it's used to talk about a big bell being rung, so it's, it's always used in a context of a, of a word just kind of epically sounding out loudly all across the countryside. And that's reinforced with the, the other word he uses where it's gone forth everywhere, right? Everywhere in the Greek means everywhere, okay? It's a little Greek insight for you there. And then he says, so that we need not say anything. So what he's saying is, hey, I'm the professional sayer. I go around from town to town saying everything about Jesus. And he says, we show up to towns now, and they already know about Jesus because your faith is ringing out so loudly across the countryside. He goes on, verse 9, he says, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you 
and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So he's saying, they, they tell us the story of how you came to Christ because you've already told them before we could even get there. And so they're saying that they received the word from Paul and from Silas and from Timothy. They received this good news of who Jesus is. And he goes on and frames it this way, saying, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and await for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So he's putting all this in the context of this is, this is how you wait, right? You're waiting for Jesus to come back. So the Christian life can, can be roughly divided into two parts, right? The first part is we trust, we believe that Jesus has forgiven us of our sins, so we're now adopted. We live as dearly beloved children of God. We belong to him. We're in his family. That's that love and that chosenness that we feel as a part of his family. And that gives us the freedom than to be about his business in this broken world. So we can live more like Jesus who came into the brokenness to help others instead of trying to escape from it, right? But there's still the reality of, man, we're still broken and we're longing and waiting for Jesus to come back and sew it all up, make everything right, to take away all our sin and our pain and our tears. And so that's the waiting aspect. And he says, if you're waiting for Jesus well, you'll be spending yourself loudly proclaiming his goodness to other people investing in other people, fulfilling all the images of the parables in Matthew 24 and 25, investing your talents, celebrating Jesus, serving other people instead of taking advantage of them. And he says, if you do that, then you're waiting well. You're waiting in a loud way where Jesus rings out through your life. I want to focus here on his phrase about turning to God from idols. This is a really helpful concept for us. Number one, it's interesting to see, he says, first you turned to God and then you turned from idols, which is helpful to see because sometimes we have to run to Jesus first before he can completely clean up our life, right? Because a lot of us get it mixed up and think, you know what, I want to start walking with Jesus, so I guess I've got to get my house in order, fix myself, and then he'll accept me, and then I can come to Jesus. But it's actually the opposite. You turn to God. You just run to him and say, forgive me, and he forgives you, and then he'll start working on it with you okay? And he'll start helping you turn from those idols. Now, we get confused about idols because we think about the little statues that people worship in other countries. And in America, that's not very common, but we still have idols. We still have false saviors that we worship. We just don't put them as little statues on our mantle or on our table. So we might worship relationships. And we think, I could just get my life in order if I had a really good spouse or a good boyfriend or girlfriend or another good boyfriend or girlfriend or a happy family or good kids or whatever it might be. And we, we might be worshiping the idol of relationship. That might be you. Or maybe it's the idol of comfort and you're running to alcohol or to drugs or to porn or whatever it may be. And you're just saying, I just want to feel better because this world stinks, right? And so you're, you're seeking out that shelter. You're trying to find this salvation in comfort, it might be money. It might be getting respect at work, right? As a man, we can get lured into that. As women, you can get lured into that. Just kind of feeling important. People respect you. They see the good job you're doing. I don't know what it is for you, but we run to God and say, God, help me. And then he helps us to turn from those idols. He starts showing us bit by bit. Sometimes you come to Jesus. He saves you. 20 years later, you're, in a, you're just in a different place, Right? You're encountering different temptations. And so throughout our lifetime, we have to keep turning from these idols. It's not like we come to Jesus and leave Jesus and come to Jesus and leave Jesus. You come to Jesus, and then he'll keep working with you over a lifetime. 
You're secure in his hands, but he'll keep working with you to turn from those idols and maybe new idols that you're tempted by at different points of your life. So that's what it means to wait loudly. It means to have a life where you're not ashamed of talking about this, this faith that you have, where it rings out and other people know about it, but also where other people can see it at work in your life. I had a friend who said he was training a new person to replace him, uh, and they finally said after a few days, like, like hey, are you, are you a Christian? Because I could kind of see it in your life, right? And that's really what we want. We want people to be able to see that, that we love Jesus and we love other people. We want that to come through in our life. I have a sign spinner here, and I was trying to think of, like, what's the most ridiculous thing I could think of for your faith ringing out? And my goal is not to get all of you to go buy Jesus signs and become a sign spinner, but my goal is for you to kind of feel a little tension of, like, what would it look like for me to take a next step, right? So maybe this is too ridiculous. I don't know that sign spinning for Jesus is the most effective way to let your faith ring out, but, but what is it for you? What's the next step maybe that Jesus is pressing you to let, let people see, to be a little more transparent, to be a little more real about where your hope lies so that your faith would, would ring out, would loudly sound forth everywhere. That, that's the goal, that we would be honest, transparent, and invest in others. So I want to wrap up here by talking about just the last word in verse 10. Uh, in verse 10, he says again, we're waiting for a son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Um, and as we think about our authentic adoption as God's children, we have to recognize that being God's children makes us weird, okay? Because um, we have a strong temptation in this culture to want to reduce that weirdness as much as possible. And I always advise people, if you're a Christian, you know, try to be as normal as you can, right? Don't be unnecessarily weird. But here we're ending with two doctrines that are weird, okay? Two doctrines that are unpopular. What I mean by weird is they're unpopular in our culture today. One is that we're waiting for Jesus to come back. That's unpopular because we live in this imminent frame that says what I can see and measure and taste and, and uh, put metrics to scientifically, that's all that exists. And we're saying, well, I'm, I'm actually waiting for Jesus to come back from heaven. <laughs> but that's kind of weird, Right? That's kind of crazy, but that's what we're waiting for. And then he also says, that's our, that's our protection from the wrath to come. That's another weird doctrine. Because again, we're forgetting that in this world. We, we start to think about grace in the context of grace means God's not really mad about sin, and he never really was. We just misunderstood him in the Old Testament, right? But if you, if you really read the Old and New Testament, maybe the Old Testament emphasizes his wrath more. Maybe the New Testament emphasizes his grace more, but both are there in both places. And God's grace only makes sense if God actually hates sin. If God doesn't hate sin, you don't need any grace. You don't need any forgiveness. And so on the one hand, we want to be careful that we don't go overboard with the wrath of God. And I think this can look like this. Every time you stub your toe, you're like, God is pouring out his wrath on me, right? And that can be a little dangerous, right? Kind of the Puritan extreme. Um, so I think it is helpful in, in some aspects of the world to just say, man, hurricanes and cancer and sickness, there's kind of just a general passive brokenness in the world. The world's broke. And so we don't have to assign everything that goes wrong with God is angry at me. But we do have to recognize that God hates sin. 
He hates sin. He hates it so much that he took the most serious action he could take. And he sent his son to absorb the wrath of God. So our our message is that when Jesus died on the cross, he absorbed the wrath of God, that God was serious about your sin. He didn't just sweep it under the rug, but he died for you. And I hope you see that. I want to invite you to, to trust in that reality, that Jesus gave himself for you. And so he loves you because his son took his anger and wrath that was rightfully directed at our sin. Let me pray for us and respond in worship. God, thank you for your grace that you've given us in Jesus. That you weren't satisfied to just pour your wrath out upon us, but you did something about it. You came after us, you pursued us in love while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so, Father, I pray that you would give us a courageous faith that in the midst of this world where transcendence makes no sense, that we would see that we are adopted and loved by a holy God who made all things and who shows us his love through the cross. We thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name.